Uh, I'm Dr. Ted Kuhn. That's me there. And what I'd like to talk to you about are global health trends around the world. This is not a mission talk. Uh, this is more of a medical talk uh, with uh, emphasis on what the major trends are that I see around the world that may impact uh, you or your ministry uh, as you work in different, uh, different uh, countries. Let me begin uh, by actually quoting somebody else. Um, uh, two years ago or so, I was at a conference where the head of the CDC spoke, uh, Julie Gerberding at that time, and she started her talk on global threats uh, with this pyramid. And the pyramid... Uh, basically showed different threats to, to what she thought were, were medicine and to the world's health. Um, and she defined them as three extremes. Can you all hear some or just not so good? No. Sharon, can you see if the tech guy can come and turn this up? Uh, yeah, well, the lady's looking for it. Okay. But I can hear you over here. Okay. Does anybody else hear me? I think it's better. You can hear me? Then we're set, and they were okay. Okay, there we go. Uh, she defined it as three extremes, extreme poverty, extreme weather, uh, and extreme ideology. And I think some of the message would be that I'm going to talk to you about today really is defined by these extreme, extremes. What we mean by extreme poverty is not difficult for us all to understand. There's a huge disparity between uh, the haves and the have-nots, the north and the south. Generally, it's divided north and south. Uh, we obviously have a lot more resources than other countries do, and there's a disparity. And, and sometimes we live like the other people don't know that we have uh, this prosperity, but no matter where you go, they understand that uh, we have a lot more resources than they do. Uh, extreme weather. Uh, we've seen weather problems throughout the world, tsunamis, hurricanes, uh, volcanoes. Uh, we're apparently more used to seeing those things than those that came before us. Uh, I called uh, the meteorology service in the United States before, I guess some months ago, and I said, listen, are we having more extreme weather than we've had in the past? Because Everybody asks me, you know, from a biblical perspective, are we seeing more conflicts? Are we seeing more weather or whatever? And it's interesting. They said in the United States that the uh, weather extremes are plateaued, that we really are not seeing more. And their impression was is that we probably were not seeing more around the world, but we're just more aware of it because of our media. So I don't know that I know the answer to that question, but certainly there are extremes in weather of those of you who have participated maybe in Katrina or in the tsunami or uh, hurricanes around the world. An extreme ideology. Um, I think there has been extreme ideology for a long time, but there certainly seems to be an unwillingness to accept people uh, of other opinions around the world, uh, people uh, of diverse religions, races, creeds, uh, and that has led uh, to a very dangerous world where we have poverty, uh, extremes in environmental circumstances, and extremes in ideology that do not allow us uh, uh, much flexibility in, uh, in the way we view things if you're in an extreme uh, ideology area, for example, uh, is extreme Islamic uh, fundamentalism. And I believe the message that I would bring you to, to you today, if there is one takeaway message, is that when you have these three extremes working together, you live in a very dangerous, uh, unstable world. And that is the world we find ourselves in today. The major threats to the world's health, I can't list them all. This is kind of a soundbite of multiple different issues uh, that I'd like to bring to you today. I've listed the ones that we're going to kind of see from 30,000 feet in the air. We don't have time to be able to discuss all of these, but I want to just give you a little impression of each one of them. We're going to talk about traffic accidents and trauma, malaria and mosquito-transmitted illnesses, uh, helmets and protozoa, uh, terrorism and genocide, global 
hunger and starvation, natural disasters, uh, HIV AIDS. Uh, there are other threats to the world's health that we will not be able to discuss, and it's not because they're not important. It's just simply that we have an hour and there's a lot of material to cover, especially global epidemics, which is something that I love to talk on, which really deserves an hour itself when you think about H1N1 or H5N1 or the SARS epidemic. Uh, also, the growth of chronic diseases in the developing world is a real threat to the world's health, um, things like diabetes, hypertension, uh, other chronic illnesses, cardiovascular disease. And the last one, which I am not going to talk about, and I would, um, how would, how would one say, I would plead with you that there is someone in this room who hears my voice that will actually do something about this. And I included this picture, which I took two weeks ago. Uh, that is a, a young man who is so severely depressed that he is lying in the mud uh, along a riverbank in South Asia. For those of you who live and work in the developing world, you will know that there is virtually no mental health care uh, in the developing world. And uh, this young man was severely depressed uh, and basically had no resources, uh, no ability uh, to find any uh, health care uh, where he was. So maybe one of you, God willing, will hear my voice and decide that that's something that you want to address. Well, let me start off with number one, which is uh, trauma and uh, motor vehicle accidents. For those of you who travel to the developing world from a traveler perspective, this is the number one uh, health care problem that you will face and your teams as you travel, which is trauma. If you're under 55, if you're over 55, I'm getting tied up here. If you're uh, over 55, that's cardiovascular disease. Now, does anybody, uh, does that strike anybody as interesting that under 55 is trauma and over 55 is cardiovascular disease? What does that sound like? Sounds like here, yeah, and that's exactly what it is. The uh, threat to, uh, with trauma and cardiovascular disease in the developing world is identical to that in the United States. I was in a country in China, uh, in a city in China, uh, not too long ago. I had uh, been there two years previously, and I had lectured at a center for trauma, and uh, I'd gone away and come back two years later. This is a one of those big cities that you've never heard of with 20 million people or so in it. And I noticed on the way back two years later that uh, the roads were a lot more congested. And when I went to my Chinese host, I said something to him because I'd been a little late getting there. And I said, gee, the traffic was pretty bad today. And he said, well, when you were here two years ago, this is Chongqing for those that, you know, Chongqing and Chengdu, uh, huge cities, 38 million people in, in uh, Chongqing, um, that there were 600,000 uh, cars in our city when you were here the last time, and now two years later, uh, there are two million cars. So they've had an increase from 600,000 to two million. And what we see, I think, around the world is a growing, evolving middle class. And when middle class have a little bit of expendable money, uh, what would they like to do with that money? Well, same thing that you and I would like to do with the money. They'd like to buy an automobile. And what you have is a world with increasing number of vehicles uh, without infrastructure to really um, accommodate those vehicles and inexperienced drivers in very powerful uh, automobiles. So we have an increased number of people owning vehicles, an increased number of vehicles. Um, transportation infrastructure is certainly not there. Uh, and we still have uh, pedestrians and animals and whatever on the road. Now, my wife and I uh, lived for, for a number of years in Bangladesh. 
And uh, Bangladesh, when we first went there, you would see a car infrequently. And the roads were, were for communal use. Basically, there weren't very many vehicles. We had, you know, ox carts on the road. We had people drying their rice. Uh, we had people drying their lentils. Uh, we had children playing on the roads. In the wintertime, it was common practice uh, because uh, it's a little bit chilly in the wintertime. It wouldn't necessarily, you think it would be chilly, but it gets down to 60 degrees or so. And the, um, the, the roads actually hold the temperature, so people in the middle of the night in the village area where we lived would actually go out and sleep on those roads. They'd sleep in a line down the roads. And, of course, if you're driving a vehicle at Whatever, however many miles an hour you're driving a vehicle down uh, rural Bangladesh in the middle of the night, you don't expect to see 30 people lying in the middle of the road uh, sleeping. Uh, we were just back there last uh, a week and a half ago, and um, looking over the years that we've been there, there are a lot of congestion on the road, a lot of vehicles, but we still have the ox carts and the children uh, and uh, the rice on the road. So that has also become a very dangerous place because of the increased uh, number of vehicles. So pedestrians and animals and crops... Uh, share the road with the cars. Also, some places in the developing world have just bizarre um, driving habits. Now, I, there's enough of you in this room that if I say, what is the most bizarre driving habit you've ever seen in the developing world? Does anybody have a really good story of a bizarre driving habit? Yes. In Malaysia, um, instead of um, when you're merging into another lane, uh, instead of looking in your rear view mirror to see if you can merge, you just go for it. Um, so, like, you watch your rear view mirror for people who are coming in behind you or, so, that, so that you can speed up if you need to, but that's the only thing you use it for. So it's, it's kind of dangerous, well, for, especially for Americans who are not used to that driving pattern. I was in a country where if you come to an intersection, you blow your horn first, you have the right-of-way. So you go 40 miles an hour into the intersection, and you try to listen for the horn, and if you blow first, you, you go on through. Uh, there's another country that I visited that uh, they like to check, uh, kind of like to see if their fate is good for the day, if those of you know what country this is, if you've been there, and you'll be driving your car along the road, and all of a sudden somebody will dart in front of you. Uh, to check their fate, uh, quote-unquote, and obviously if you don't. And there, there are other simple things in Mexico, just our, our neighbor to the south. I don't know if you all recognize if you want to turn left, you go into the right lane, and you make a uh, uh, turn across the left lane uh, into, the, into your left-hand turn lane. Also, many countries, you put on your left blinking light. What does that mean, your left turn light uh, signal? It means you can pass when you turn on your left. It's okay for you to pass if you're... I have your left turn signal on, blinking signs. Okay, come on, you can pass. Um, no seat belts or airbags, uh, fast and reckless driving. I was in a, a country in South America in a brand new Ford 150 uh, truck. And I got in the truck, there was a missionary driving, and I recognized there were no seat belts and no airbags. And I said to him, you know, this is a brand new truck from Ford, you know, where are your seat belts and airbags? And he said, well, uh, the, this, this Ford truck, and I have nothing against Ford trucks. I don't want anybody to write me up and say Dr. Coons against Ford trucks. Uh, anyway, uh, they made this vehicle for South America, and they weren't required to put in uh, restraints and all the other things that we had, so the vehicle didn't have them. And no child safety restraints. I, I think there's almost nowhere in the developing world where you see child safety restraints. There's no EMS system, no 911. One country that I was in, if you dial 911, you get the pizza delivery guy. Um, let me tell you a little story. I was in the Philippines, and we were working in the southern part of Philippines with some church planters. And one of the pastors who uh, I had known uh, and uh, had become friendly with took a jeepney 
Uh, a jeepney is the, the front vehicle, part of the vehicle is a jeep. Uh, the back of it has some benches on it, and you can sit in there. They can get 8 or 12 or 10 or 15 people in the back of one of these. And uh, the jeepney stops wherever, and you jump off, and it's your stop. And he was going down to the area where we're, we were, uh, an hour or two south of Manila, and he got to his stop and uh, jumped off the back of the jeepney. Unfortunately, there was a truck behind them that didn't have very good brakes. The truck couldn't stop, and he got his left leg pinned between the truck bumper and the bumper of the jeepney, and he sustained a compound fracture of his tib-fib on the left side. Now, I've been doing medicine a a very long time, and I see a lot of tib-fib fractures. Uh, My friend bled to death. Uh, on the road. It took him two hours to exsanguinate uh, on the road. There was no EMS system. There was nobody to come rescue him. Uh, there was no one who knew enough to put um, pressure uh, on his leg to stop the bleeding. Uh, and uh, he left a young wife and two children uh, from a totally preventable uh, death. And I think the point there is, is that things that will happen to you in the developing world that you would think might be minor uh, in the United States can be absolutely lethal because of the um, lack of resources uh, of where you might be. Poor ICU facilities. I hardly know any country in the world outside the West where I would take blood supplies. I don't know about you all, but uh, that would scare me half to death. This is a young man that um, got injured in the developing world, and we took him, quote-unquote, to the best hospital, to the best ICU, where he was observed overnight, and uh, I, I stayed there with him. And observation in this ICU meant that this nurse, this one here, for those of you on this side, stood by his bed overnight and watched him, uh, which was their observation, which quite unnerved him. He said, Dr. Kuhn, can't you get this lady out of here? And she said, no, she's observing you in the ICU. Uh, She can't go. Uh, Would you like to be in that ICU overnight? I, I I suspect that you probably would not. So the number one cause at least in your travelers and your teams and your team members uh, in, over in the developing world is going to be trauma uh, for under the age 55, the same uh, that we have here. The second threat to global health uh, emerging disease is mosquito and mosquito-borne illnesses. Uh, I probably don't need to remind you that malaria is a huge killer in the world. 40% of the world's population lives in malaria endemic zones. 1.3 million people with malaria per year, leading cause of death and illness in developing nations. Children under the age of five are particularly susceptible uh, to death and and pregnant women uh, from malaria. And it can be and has been the leading cause of death in many countries of the world, particularly in Africa. Uh, Malaria is responsible for as many as half the uh, deaths in African children. I want you to look at this child. I took this picture. This is a child that I saw in West Africa. Uh, This is a boy. He has a... a, uh, kind of a dress on, but it's a boy. This boy came in, and I saw him within a couple of minutes, I don't remember, of when he arrived in this clinic. Uh, He had a seizure, and he wasn't responding very well. His mother brought him in, and uh, we looked at him and said, this does not look good. I bet he has cerebral malaria. So we started an IV, which just took a minute or two. Uh, We got blood. These are not my fingers here, but there's somebody else's. Uh, Got blood. I made a malaria smear, took it to the lab, And it took us maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15, to do a malaria smear. And when I saw the malaria smear, the paracetamia was very high. I don't don't remember what it was. I don't know that I even counted it. But it confirmed the fact that he had cerebral malaria. All that we had in that clinic was IV quinine. And for those of you who know about cerebral malaria, IV quinine is a good drug, but it will not 
save anybody from cerebral malaria because it doesn't act fast enough. You have to use one of the artesinates for, for cerebral malaria. By the time I did the stain, this young, this young man was dead. And the reason I want you to look at this picture is because I want you to remember him. I don't want him to have died in vain. I want somebody to remember that malaria kills children. It kills them rapidly. And uh, we need the drugs, the facilities to treat children just like this little boy uh, so that uh, more children don't have to die and suffer uh, like he did. Malaria in the Americas. Um, there has been a huge increase in mosquito-borne illnesses in the, in the Americas from Central America the whole way down through South America. Uh, this is 1960. This is malaria distribution in South America here. Uh, and this is 1995, malaria distribution in 95 in the Americas, in, in South America. Um, why, as, as you can see, in 1960, we all had almost eradicated malaria, except for one little focus here in, in Ecuador and Guyana. Why, why is that, do you think? Why do we have increased malaria? Yes. AIDS? No, it wouldn't have to do with AIDS, but good guess. Pardon, resistance to what? There's the man. Say it again. DDT. In 1948, uh, the world decided to attack malaria uh, and use residual spraying, particularly, well, only in uh, this hemisphere, with DDT. Uh, from 1948 to 1974, there was residual spraying with DDT uh, throughout uh, Central and South America, and it reduced the incidence of malaria to almost nothing. It reduced the incidence of dengue to almost nothing. It reduced the incidence of dengue hemorrhagic fever to almost nothing. Uh, it reduced Chagas disease to almost nothing. In 1974, it was decided to take DDT off the market because it, it um, had repository um, effects in, in humans, and from 1974 uh, to 1994, 20 years, because the half-life of DDT was 20 years, if you remember correctly, uh, there has been a huge recrudescence of malaria and mosquito-borne illnesses. And this is not only just for malaria. Here's Aedes aegypti. Aedes aegypti is the mosquito that carries alpha and flaviviruses, for those of you who remember, uh, yellow fever, uh, dengue encephalitis. 1930s, you see from south uh, of the southern part of the United States, uh, the whole way down through uh, South America, now in 1970, with repository use of DDT. Uh, wasn't very much used in the United States, but 1998. And I will tell you, if you follow the epidemiology of these maps, uh, the incidence of mosquito-borne illnesses in the last 10 years has kept up with that. And there's more black on those maps now than there were in 1998 when this was taken. The dengue hemorrhagic fever prior to 81, uh, after uh, 81 over here. Um, uh, this isn't a commentary on whether we should use DDT or not. It's just, I think, to make you aware. For those of you perhaps who have worked and lived in Central or South America for many years uh, and remember a time uh, when there was no dengue or there was no malaria in Central or South America, this is a new day. Uh, this is a new time. This is, this is not the 1990s. This is uh, uh, different. If you follow ProMed or any of the epidemiologic services that uh, give you the epidemiology of infectious diseases in this hemisphere, you'll always see postings. There was a posting last week from El Salvador, about 3,500 cases, new cases of dengue. So remember, this is an emerging infectious disease. All the mosquito-borne illnesses from malaria, alpha, and flaviviruses uh, have had a tremendous um, increase in, in our hemisphere. And by the way, in case you all wanted to know, we, we also have 
these mosquitoes in southern United States. We used to have all these diseases uh, in the U.S. Uh, uh, long ago, and there's no particular reason except for our sanitation uh, that they could not uh, occur again in our locations. Maybe not as far north as here, uh, but where I live in Georgia uh, certainly is a possibility. Now, for malaria, we have multiple problems, multiple emerging problems with malaria. We have multi-drug resistance. Uh, it's no surprise to any of you, I guess, that we have chloroquine resistance. We've had chloroquine resistance uh, for 15 or 20 or, or more years. Uh, chloroquine just doesn't work in many parts of the world. still works in Central and South America uh, to a point, to an extent, and some parts in the Middle East. But other than that, chloroquine is pretty much uh, useless when you look at Africa and Asia. And now, of course, we have mefloquine resistance uh, in Asia. We have primaquine resistance. Uh, we have resistance to Fancidar and multiple other drugs that have developed. If you look at uh, the epidemiology, it seems to start in and around Thailand and spread from Thailand uh, to Myanmar to Cambodia to Laos. Uh, and now we have significant drug resistance down in Indonesia. And it will not be long until you have drug resistance in a place near you. And there are virtually no new, uh, almost no new drugs coming out for malaria. So this is a problem that we're going to have to face, not only as travelers and working in the developing world, but certainly with our patients as well as we think about what might be best for them. And to compound that is counterfeit drugs. I don't know if you all have had to deal with counterfeit where you are. Uh, it is not only a problem in Asia, which is where it started. It is a problem in Central and South America as well. It started out with counterfeits to malaria drugs. This is artesunate. Uh, one of those is a, a counterfeit. Uh, another one is the real drug. They put a hologram on here to, after um, they started counterfeiting the artesunate in, in Asia. And this is the hologram. So you could tell them apart by the fact that they had the hologram on them. And then the counterfeiters uh, copied the hologram. Now, I can tell the difference between these two. This is the real one. Uh, this is the counterfeit, this counterfeit over here. I put some circles around, and you can see that uh, the Guyan Mountains actually come off to the side, which is the counterfeit. Uh, and there's also a little different bumps, and there's a little bit different color. Uh, but you can't expect a poor farmer in Laos to know the difference between those holograms. Uh, we now have uh, a counterfeit antibiotics. Cipro has been counterfeited. Uh, we have counterfeit uh, many, many different kinds of drugs, and uh, that has now reached uh, around the world. And there are some ep um, programs that are addressing this, but they are slow to respond, and this is a multi-billion dollar, I'm sure, business uh, that has caught on and is something that we're going to have to deal with for many years to come. Worms, number three, threat to the world's health. 1.3 billion people uh, are infected uh, with Roundworms, a uh, billion people with hookworm, doesn't mean very much to you maybe, but that's actually a quarter of the world's population uh, or thereabouts. Uh, up to 30% of the world's children uh, in poor areas have Giardia, and I've heard as much as 50 to 80% of the children, poor children, in underdeveloped areas are infected with Giardia, a protozoa that causes diarrhea and bloating and sometimes malabsorption. We know how this is transmitted. Uh, this is the hookworm transmission uh, through the sole of the foot. You can also get fecal-oral transmission of, of roundworms. Uh, and simple measures can really control or eliminate the problem of worms. Yet still, here I am in the 21st century talking about something that has plagued people for many, many years and continues to, to plague us uh, even still. Now, 
You may not remember that worms are a problem, but I bet you'll remember this story. So I'm going to tell you the story if I can get myself extricated again. So I, I do probably 20, 30% of my time I do adult medicine, and, and the other 60 or 70% of the time I do pediatrics. And children have taught me many things. One thing I know about children is they never stay in the same place at the same time. If you put a child down and you come back a minute later, that child has moved from point A to point B or whatever they're doing. They have stopped doing what they're doing, and now they're doing something different. So I was in the slums of Manila, the Piatas dump. Have anybody ever been in the Piatas dump? Wow. Nobody? Nobody's been in the Piatas dump? Wow. Huh? Who's been in the Piatas? Oh, that's my wife. <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm coming apart here. Yes, she's been in the Piatas dump. We kid our medical students and residents. I always say, travel with me and I'll take you all the worst places in the world. The Piatas dump is... Oh, well. It's one of the lar largest dumps in the world and one of the most pervasive slums. Um, and I had been asked to go see a, a young man who was dying from pneumonia. And I didn't know exactly where to go, but I walked past these children. There are five children there. I saw this kid squatting down. I thought, that's a little bit unusual. Uh, as I walked past, this kid's sitting there. But it's, it's not unusual that he's sitting there. It's unusual that these other kids are around him. Uh, and it, it, I hope it strikes you as unusual that there are five kids barefoot in the dump without any parental supervision. I, I, I didn't make that point. But uh, obviously there are five kids in this terrible, terrible dump, uh, and there's no adults anywhere to be seen. So I kind of look at them. I think, hmm, that's interesting. And I, I go to see this gentleman with pneumonia and come back, oh gracious, 20, 30 minutes later, huh? I don't remember. There was a period of time the man was very sick, so I probably spent more time than that. And I see the kids in the same position. Now, the pediatric part of my brain says, there's got to be a story here. This is interesting. Uh, part of me says, you know, walk on to see the next patient. My pediatric brain says, no, stop, see what's going on. So I stop and see what's going on. These are actually my hands on this kid's back here. I got uh, somebody else to take the picture. And this kid is passing an ascaris. And I'm looking down there. There's a little ascaris kind of wiggling around, and it's half in and half out. And I think, well, that's interesting. And as I'm taking this, I said to no, my wife, take a picture. This is interesting. You know, there's a little ascaris coming out. Uh, so she takes a picture, which you can't see the ascaris. It's, it's, it's actually there. It's hard, it's hard to see. It's kind of dangling there. Uh, maybe it's gracious that you can't see it. I don't know. Um, but... Um, as we're standing there, this little girl standing beside reaches down, grabs the ascaris, and pulls it out. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't. <laughs> you obviously don't like, never mind. Anyway, so I'm thinking, okay, saga's over, interesting, let's go on. And I walk across the street, there's a little pool hall over there, and I'm trying to find another, another patient that I'm supposed to see. And uh, come back a couple minutes later. And they have taken this ascaris, which is maybe, what, 8 to 12 inches long, and they found a little thread, and they've tied the thread around the ascaris, and they're pulling it behind them like their new pet. And they're very pleased with taking this little ascaris uh, with them uh, all over the slums. So hopefully with that story, which is interesting enough, you'll remember that uh, one quarter of the world's children are infected with worms. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a minute. So... Terrorism and genocide, something a little more sobering, I think. Also, third threat, fourth threat to the world's health. 
Genocide, the deliberate extermination of a race of people, uh, coined in 1944, accepted into general use in 1948, now also includes mass political murder as well. That actually comes from the Webster's Dictionary. And terrorism, I, I like this definition, the policy of using acts inspiring terror as a method of ruling or of conducting political oppression. Now, what do you think of when you think of genocide? Somebody say something. Pardon? Hitler. Okay. That's the first thing that comes to mind. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Now, when I think of genocide, I think about my parents. Because my parents lived during World War II. My father fought in World War II. And it's impossible to think about genocide without thinking of Hitler and extermination of, of multiple different people. We think of the Jews, which certainly were exterminated, but there are other classes of people, the gypsies and other folks that were exterminated as well. And I have often prided myself by saying, certainly if I had lived during that area and I had known, I would certainly do something about it. Does that make sense? Certainly if I knew that there were extermination camps with millions of people dying, I would have done something about it. By the way, there's good evidence, I hate to say this, there's good evidence that the United States knew that a year or two before uh, the end of the war. Um, there's fairly good intelligence that we knew that there were extermination camps. Now, to be honest, it's probably, probably nobody ever dreamt of the extent. Does that make sense? But the U.S. military knew that. So I'm thinking genocide, obviously a problem of my parents' generation, and me, and modern man here, I certainly would have done something about it. Now, these are the problems of my, my parents' generation, Armenia, Germany, Japan, and Russia. Uh, I don't know if you all know about the Armenian genocide, but they took um, the Armenian, mostly uh, Christians, and they put them in boxcars, and they took them to, quote-unquote, resettlement camps where they never reemerged. So Hitler was not the inventor of the extermination camps and the boxcars. Uh, that actually happened uh, years before. Uh, so these are major uh, Incidents of genocide. I think what I would like to leave with you today is that genocide is our problem. It is a problem of my parents, but it is our problem. There have been many, many more countries, many, many more people exterminated since you and I have been alive than ever in my parents' generation. Uh, Cambodia, some of you are old enough to remember Cambodia, Ethiopia, Romania, Somalia, uh, Rwanda, Yugoslavia, Indonesia, from east to more is only a couple of years ago. Uh, Sudan is today. So when we think of genocide, I don't want you to think, you can think about it. I mean, you're welcome to think about Hitler. I want you to think about our responsibility today in 2009 because this is a problem of our generation, not a problem of my father's generation. 8,000 people a day hacked to death. Um, this is not smart bombs from 35,000 feet. These are people hacking people to death face-to-face uh, -face killing fields. If you've ever been to Cambodia, uh, there's a museum there called uh, Tuslag uh, where they have chronicled uh, the death of these millions of people that were uh, slaughtered uh, by the Khmer Rouge, by Pot Paul's uh, regime. Uh, and they took pictures of these folks and put numbers on them, and then they took them out to the killing fields and shot them. Uh, and they chronicled all of it. And you can actually look through these uh, pictures with these folks with their with their um, photographs on them, and and you, you can look at their face. I want you to look at the faces of the children, uh, and look at this lady here. Uh, she knows what's going to happen, doesn't she? He he obviously knows what's going to happen. Look at this guy, uh, but she knows. They all know. Once they get their picture taken, they only have a couple minutes to live. 
baby. I don't know if you saw that in the picture. This comes from Darfur. I don't know if you've seen this. They were raped. They tied them and put cotton in their mouths. Then they lit the cotton and burned them to death. This is on our watch, folks. Twentieth century, twenty-first century, the bloodiest century in the history of humankind on our watch. Why the United States is or isn't on the list? Pardon? Abortion. Yeah, good point. That's another issue. Global hunger and starvation. Number five. We're getting there, folks. And there's some good news at the end. Picture of a young woman, young girl I, I took uh, waiting in line for food uh, a couple of years ago. This is actually me. I need to tell you that. Uh, I didn't always look gray. I actually was young at one point. Um, this is the first time I've ever met global starvation in 1974 in a South Asian uh, famine. Uh, I'm holding a little child here. I'm working in a refugee camp. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, they never told me about starvation in medical school. I don't even remember it being mentioned. And when I first got into a place where I had thousands and thousands of malnourished uh, people and children uh, to deal with. I had absolutely no idea uh, how to deal with it. And my first impression was the wrong impression. And if any of you find yourself in this situation, I encourage you to think it through. My first impression was to feed them. And if anybody knows anything about malnutrition and starvation, that is absolutely the wrong thing to do, uh, is to give them high-calorie, high-protein diet. Uh, and I'm sure uh, I'm responsible for the demise, early demise of, of many children from using high-protein, high-calorie supplements until I figured out that the kids that I was feeding were the ones that were dying. Uh, I would encourage you, before you find yourself in this situation, to learn a little bit of how, how to treat advanced uh, malnutrition. And you do need to feed them, but uh, certainly uh, not overwhelm them at the beginning with uh, high-calorie, high high-content food. Ninety million children severely deprived of food, according to UNICEF. Uh, almost uh, 850 million people in developing countries don't have enough to eat. Uh, these are the countries where we have problems with nutrition. The black countries are the ones where over 30% of the children are two standard deviations, under, under five. Over 30% of the children under five are under two standard deviations below the mean. And the dark gray ones are uh, 10 to 20%, uh, two standard deviations under the mean. That means in these countries that are black, one-third of the children in those countries are severely malnourished. And the countries that are gray, uh, one-fifth of the children are severely malnourished. And this band extends the whole way across the world from Africa, a little bit in Central America, uh, through Asia. So a substantial number of people in the world are severely malnourished. The picture that I took, and I like to call this picture the last chicken. I didn't realize when I took this picture that there was a chicken in the picture. Uh, but these are, are people that are dying of starvation uh, in a country that I won't mention uh, that I was involved with. And uh, you can see the hopelessness on their face. Uh, the weakness, uh, the malnutrition, 
And this is 2003. Everybody in this room was alive in 2003. So again, this is on our watch. The faces of starvation. When Sharon and I, when my wife and I go into an area where there's uh, starvation or malnutrition, the children die first. And people ask you, how long has this, this uh, famine been going on? The way we determine that is by looking at what age the children are alive. It's usually the children that are weaned from the breast at about age one that die first. The one to two-year-olds die first, then the two to fours, then the four to sixes, and then the, the older children and the adults. So if you go into a community and there are no little kids, uh, that's the one to twos, and it's a fairly early famine. If you go in and you don't see any five or six years old, that famine has gone on pretty long already, and you've already lost your, your ones to six children, so it's been going on for a while. It's an easy way to grade uh, community involvement in famine without having to do any fancy surveys. Now let me leave you with a thought. I went into this, uh, this is another famine. I went into this little hut to see these kids. There are three little kids there and they hadn't had anything to eat in three days. Now I had gone to this hut by getting in a Land Rover and driving an hour and a half and I had gotten up in the morning, had a nice breakfast with eggs and toast and coffee in a place there was plenty of food. And I had driven an hour and a half, folks, an hour and a half down to a severe famine. And I could stand in front of this house and look across a wide expanse and see a whole green area where there was food growing. The question I will leave you with is there is enough food in the world today. I mean, if we wanted to feed people, we could feed people. It's not like we don't have the food. We actually pay our farmers not to grow food sometimes. But food can also be used as a political mechanism for genocide. And that's what was happening with these folks. Sure, these folks were in a famine. Sure, these folks were hungry. But it took me an hour and a half from where there was plenty of food to get to these children where they had no food. And food was being used as a political weapon uh, for genocide in this country. Charity offends almost no one. But at one point or another, justice offends practically everyone. Disasters number six. I couldn't find a good uh, definition of disaster, so I made up my own. How are we doing on time? Uh, Disruption of the normal lives of a population so that external assistance is required for the provision of basic needs and survival. The operative word is required. If you've ever been involved in disaster management, one of the things that you recognize is that people are always angry at their government. They're angry at their local authorities. They're angry at their government. They say the government isn't doing enough to help us. Happened in Katrina. We are the, the... Arguably the most um, wealthy country in the world, yet our own country failed to deliver goods to Katrina victims. Is that right? So by definition, I use that as part of my definition, is the the local system the government has failed. And you see that all over the world when you respond to disasters. They complain that the government has failed. I use that as a criteria for disaster. Disasters frequently strike worldwide often in places with minimum infrastructure in place to respond, untold suffering, hundreds of thousands of people uh, suffer. A government response I have as often is always inadequate, always inadequate. If it were adequate, it wouldn't be an international disaster, would it? Uh, International aid does not trickle down. I love to tell you some stories. I don't know that we have time. If we have time, I'll tell you my favorite story about international aid and how international aid absolutely tripled or quadrupled the suffering of the people after it was given, and that's, that's basically another story. There is a role for small organizations to work on a local level. What happens in disasters, international disasters, is you have government sending in aid, 
and large aid organizations sending in aid. So they fly in C-130s or they fly in, or they bring ships in full of food or supplies and they dump them wherever the point is. And that stuff, that's macro aid. That stuff stays there. And what happens in disasters is there's nobody or no force of people to take that, all that stuff that is there down to a local level. And that's where we come in. We are the hands and feet of Christ, and we can take that macro aid and take it down into the village level and live with the people in the village and serve their needs. Uh, so we take what is macro from governments. I don't think we need to, as Christians, respond on the macro level. There are governments that are willing to. There's, you're never going to be able to raise enough money in your organization to equal the United States government or the Canadian government or the, you know, the, the German government or whatever. They're going to send all their stuff there. But what we can do is we can take that stuff and take it into the villages and give it to individual persons. And that's our, our role, I think, uh, as uh, disaster response workers. Now, if you look at the way disasters are, this is a 21-year study. Japan had 43 disasters. Japan is one of the most disaster-prone countries in the world, yet they have one of the smallest or least death rate uh, because they do it very well. Probably no one does disaster response or management better than the Japanese do. But as you look at the countries as they become poorer and poorer, you'll notice that uh, there's a substantial number of disasters, but the death rate goes up substantially. This is my country, Bangladesh. Uh, that is a way underestimate of the number of deaths in a 21-year period because I was there when a half a million people uh, were allegedly uh, killed some years ago. And that, there's no way that includes uh, those folks there. We were just there a couple of weeks ago after the second cyclone hit the same place down in the Delta region uh, in a year with untold numbers of people uh, dead. And the reason we don't know is nobody counts people down there. I mean, nobody knows how many people are there. How can you find out how many people died if you don't know how many people were there to begin with? Uh, so it's hard to know. But what the take-home lesson here is the poorer you get, the greater the number of death rate. Does that make sense? So poor countries are certainly disproportionately involved in death and destruction from disasters. Now this, uh, most disaster victims are in poor countries. Most property damages are in rich, rich nations. This young lady here is in Katrina, and she has lost her computer, and I am completely sympathetic with her. My life is on my computer. I have four backups for my computer. I, I'm probably more than anybody else in this room. I back up everything four times because I don't want to lose my stuff. And I would cry if I lost my computer. This family in Bami ran lost everything. They lost 20-some family members. Sharon, you took this picture. How many family members did they... They lost everything. They lost their home. They lost everything. So we lose our property. They lose their families. Nothing left. Great, great picture. Because disasters provide us an opportunity to provide humanitarian uh, resources, but also an opportunity from the gospel. If you can't get in the door from the front door, you can always go around the back. Uh, and there's been really a widespread um, evangelization in some Muslim countries because of because of disasters. Now, I don't think that's a wonderful thing. I, I wouldn't wish disaster on anyone, uh, but it does give us an opportunity not only to heal people spirit, uh, physically, but also to deal with their spiritual uh, illnesses as well. The world's population pressure and hunger for land are forcing more and more people to inhabit the Earth's hazardous zones. I'm going to give you an example that means the poor people of the world are living in places that we would have never, ever thought that people would have lived before. I'm going to give you an example from last week. I took this picture last week. This is Charland in Bangladesh. Charland, Bangladesh is a delta. 
Uh, and the, the Ganges River runs the whole way down from Kashmir on one side in Pakistan down through India, uh, takes all the water from the uh, from Nepal and the high mountains. And the Ganges River is brown. It's full of silt. And all this wonderful topsoil is, comes down the Ganges and de- is deposited in the delta of Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh, by the way, has 300 million people in, a, in the size of New Jersey. So it has the population of the United States in one state. It is the most populated per square mile country of the world. And you can imagine if you have all those people together that there's not much space, right? There's not much land. Well, charland is land that comes up out of the Ganges River and is just there, just free land. And it's actually pretty good land because it's got all this great topsoil from all these other countries. So that the the land just kind of comes up. And this is charland right here from a week ago. This is a new island. Island's probably been there a year or two, uh, and it's good topsoil. And they're planting. You can see this is rice here. I don't know if you can sell that or not. Uh, there's rice on top of there. So what happens if you're in the world's most populated country and you don't have any way to feed your family because you don't have any place to plant your rice? And all of a sudden there's an island that comes up that's a good place to plant your rice. What would you do? Well, you do the same thing they do. They go live there. And what happens? They're at sea level. When the tide comes in, they wash. They're all washed out. Now we were there. This is Charland. This is one of my team members from two weeks ago, and uh, this is the charland. You can see this water is up to above her ankles, almost uh, mid-calf. Uh, and you can't can think that it wouldn't take much water uh, to wash her out to sea. The last uh, tidal wave that came through there was a wall of water 30 feet high. And there's not even a, a, a tree in this area that's 30 feet high, so all these people wash out. So why do we have increased death rates in people in developing country? Well, because they're inhabiting places that we would never have inhabited before. This is Peru. Uh, this is a house on a, an earthquake fault here and a mudslide. So the next time we tremble, this house is going to fall down into the earthquake uh, fault here. And the next time it rains, uh, this is going to slide down uh, over this house, and there's going to be deaths. But this obviously is completely preventable uh, by addressing those needs ahead of time. HIV-AIDS. You all know that global AIDS is a problem in Africa. Uh, You may or may not be aware that AIDS is now a a tremendous evolving problem in India and also in China. Uh, People are thinking that within the next 10 years that India and China will outstrip uh, the southern half of Africa in number of HIV cases, and I believe that's probably true. I follow the epidemiology of this disease, and people are thinking that it will eventually level out or burn out in Africa but that we have 600 million people in India and uh, one quarter of the world's population in China uh, that is where the next major AIDS epidemic will, uh, will develop. This is something I wrote 10 years ago. HIV is and remains the most important public health problem of our generation. It disproportionately affects persons living in poverty, the disadvantaged, and the marginalized of society. The legacy of our generation will be written by our efforts or lack thereof to deal with this, the most important epidemic in the history of mankind. Now, when I say this is the most important history uh, epidemic in the history of mankind, somebody always raises their hand and says, what about the plague? Were not more people killed in the plague in the 13 and 1400s than in the HIV epidemic? And the answer is yes. There are more people that died in the plague epidemic in the 13 and 1400s. And they say, well, how can you call this the most important epidemic in the history of mankind if HIV has not reached the level of the plague uh, in the Middle Middle Ages. And the answer is they didn't know where the plague came from. They didn't know how to control it. They didn't know what transmitted uh, the the bacteria. Uh, They had no idea. 
HIV, we know the virus. We know how it's transmitted. We know how to treat it, and we know how to prevent it. So we have the capability of dealing with this epidemic where they didn't have the capability of dealing with the plague epidemic. That's what makes it the most important epidemic in the history of mankind. I think we will be judged by our ability or our, our um, control of this or not control of this. picture I took a couple years ago of a young woman with HIV and TB. She died shortly after I took this picture. Yes, that is a woman. What you don't see in this picture is the most important part of the picture. You don't see the two children on the floor behind the bed. Because when this woman died, and she did, she left two orphans. Now, I don't know how many of you work with HIV in Africa. Uh, before I, I actually started doing HIV work in Africa, I thought, well, it's just because they're sexually promiscuous, and that's why it's spreading from one place to the other. And what I found out, at least in my experience, and your experience may be different, I work mainly in East Africa, some, some in West Africa, is that it's usually the man, the husband, that leaves the house, goes out and gets infected and brings the HIV virus back to his wife and children. And most frequently, that wife and child has been monogamous and true and faithful. Not always. I mean, you can't generalize everything. But when we do HIV work in Africa, it is a work of women and children. The men die from a, quote-unquote, mysterious unknown illness and leave the women who are sick and eventually somebody decides they have HIV, they kick them out of their house, they kick them out of their school, the children don't go to school, they're put out on the street, uh, and they become destitute. And at that point, they will do anything uh, to support their family and their children. But at this point already, the children have been infected. This is a woman uh, that uh, died the day after we took this picture. She doesn't look so bad here. Uh, she obviously is ravaged by HIV. This is the last time uh, we took her outside and sat her on the rock and cleaned her up. Unfortunately... I didn't realize that there were these little stinging, biting ants on the rock, and she actually wound up with a bunch of little ant bites on her behind because she's sitting there naked. We lifted her back in the bed, and I didn't realize by the next day she, had, she died. And uh, this is a child with HIV. And really, when, we think, when I think about HIV in Africa, I no longer think of promiscuity in the community, although I'm sure there is some, and, there's, and there is some basis for that. But I think of women who are monogamous and children who are innocent victims. And I believe that's the way we should address it and think of it. You can't count the number of children that have HIV or HIV orphans, and those who go uncounted often count for nothing. Well, at this point, you are probably all depressed. I'm going to hold out. I'm going to hold some antidepressants at the end of this, this uh, session. I'll pass them out on the way out. Um, because you think there's absolutely no hope for anybody or anything. I've just told you that we're in this terrible pickle from all sorts of things. I want to be encouraging to you is that there really are some simple solutions to the world's complex problems. Uh, everybody thinks that I'm crazy when I say this. I wish I had more time to tell you all of them, but I'll just give you a hint of several. God grant that I not do what others can do and leave undone, that which only I can do. I would ask that you all just think about that. God grant that I not do what others can do and leave undone only that which I can do. I work in the United States. I work in academics. I work in an academic medical center. I'm scheduled to work on Monday morning. If I don't show up to work on Monday morning, you know what? Nobody will care. I mean, the, the person that gets called in to take my, my, my uh, patients will care. But within a day or two or three or a very short time, somebody else will be hired and somebody will do what I'm doing. Does that make sense? There are lots of people that can do what I do. There are very, very few people that can do what I do in the developing world. 
So God grant that I not do what others can do, fill my position at MCG as no problem at all, and leave undone only that which God has given me to do. And God has given each of you a vocation and a calling. And I would just pray, and I've heard the plenary sessions just say, you know, if you've been called, go. Uh, if somebody can replace you here in the United States, and you can do something somewhere else that somebody can't do, because nobody's willing to go and deal with these poor, dying people, HIV positive patients in sub-Saharan Africa, or go out and treat worms in the middle of nowhere, or tuberculosis patients, or... God help, God help us if somebody would please go and help us with these poor psychiatrically ill patients all over the developing world. Uh, there's nobody that I've seen that's willing to do that. Maybe one of you will do that. That is a calling that you should, you should follow. So God grant that we do that which he has given us to do. For malaria, um, we were called by the church. I think this is important for, as a point. Uh, 50% of the children in the Chin Hills, which is along the Burma uh, border of Myanmar, I was told by the church that 50% of the, the population was getting malaria uh, at one time. And there weren't any good statistics. This is a very rugged part of the world. And the church asked us to come and to help them develop a malaria control program. Now, I want to emphasize this that how did we get there? We were invited by the church. I didn't say, oh, I'm Dr. Kuhn. I'm great and I'm going to come you look like you have malaria, and I'm going to make you better. No. Uh, what we did was we said, the church said, could you please come help? We went by invitation. The church identified a problem and asked us to help. Uh, and we said, I'm not sure we can help. We'll try. We'll see what we can do. And we came up with a solution, which is a very simple solution, insect-treated bed nets. Uh, there's good science behind this. We know that if we use insect-treated bed nets uh, for children under the age of five or six, that 20% of the children in high endemicity areas for malaria will survive to their sixth birthday. 50, uh, sorry, 20, what did I say? 20% of those who would die are going to survive. I can't remember what I said. Did I say that right? So there's a, there's a survival of one, one child in five is going to survive if we do something simple like this. And that's all-cause decrease in mortality, meaning they don't die of malaria, but they don't die of measles, and they don't die of diarrhea, uh, and they don't die when they have their pneumonia. Twenty, one in five children. Now, this is a shoestring. We, we did this project. Um, here we are. Here we are dipping mosquito nets, uh, and I decided to, this is something really inexpensive. This is something each one of you can do. I went with a little bit of money, went to Yangon, Walked down the street and saw this little lady um, selling mosquito nets. And I had one of the members of the Chin Church with me, and I said, ask her how much those nets are. And there's a little conversation. She said, $2.40. I said, well, ask her how much they would be if I bought a bunch of them. And a little conversation, $1.84. I figured, what the heck, you know, this lady has five nets there. I said, ask her how much it would be if I bought 20,000 of them. And she never blinked. She got out her little calculator and went, said $1.24. I mean, she never said, what did you say? You know, this is a little lady in the middle of the street. I said, 20,000 nets, $1.24. I said, well, when can you have them? She said, by Friday. I said, you got a deal. And she didn't have 20,000 nets by Friday, but she did have 10,000 nets by Friday. And uh, these were locally purchased nets, and we did this on a shoestring, literally for just a little more than a buck and a half uh, per family. 
and uh, with a tremendous impact on the culture. And then what happened, of course, is that we distributed these nets. We said to the uh, local uh, folks, uh, we'll come in and do the nets if you provide the logistic support and put them in the villages, which they did. And we covered the whole uh, western part of Myanmar with mosquito nets for children. And then the church in another country, neighboring country, Bangladesh, up in the hill track, said, we heard you guys help with malaria in, in Myanmar. Will you come into our country and do the same thing? And we eventually wound up... Uh, protecting about 25,000 children for a shoestring budget. Now, I am not a wizard. Uh, I am not that bright. But I will tell you that you can do this. This is something very simple, uh, very, very simple. We don't use permethrin anymore. We use a, a little bit more complicated um, uh, medicine for treating the nets. But this is something everybody in this room can do. It's simple. Here we are doing the nets. Worms. You all probably know this. Uh, you know how worms are transmitted. There's good science to tell us that if you treat children uh, with albendazole every six months, you get all kinds of wonderful things that happen. You get decrease in anemia. You get decrease in malnutrition. You decrease growth stunting. You decrease poor outcome pregnancies. And you, decrease, you increase intellectual functioning for how long? For a lifetime. If you treat children who are severely malnourished with albendazole, four, four cents a tablet, you increase their intellectually functioning for their life. Not for a year, not for two years, not for five years, but for life. Forty cents, Forty cents will treat a child. This is Marta Sita. She's dying of advanced malnutrition and anemia, flaky paint dermatosis on her legs, swollen face from anemia. Uh, this is our target child. Almost nothing. Here we are giving out worm medicine in Namatsuginga village in the Amazon jungle. One last thing, and I'm going to close. HIV. Is there anything we can do with HIV? Well, the, the big picture is there certainly are some things that, that can be done, maybe a little bit more than what I can do. Universal access to medical care is a little more than I can do in most places, but it does uh, help with HIV. Prevention of mother-child transmission, very easy to do uh, with some medicines at the time of delivery. Empowerment of women. As women are educated, as they are able to own uh, their own property, uh, the HIV transmission goes down uh, as women are able to control their own life. Uh, when men and husbands control women, uh, the HIV is, is very high. When women begin to become empowered with education and with finances, it goes down. But I think the most important thing I want you to see here is the biblical concept of marriage, meaning the gospel. And we really have the answer to that. We carry the answer to the AIDS epidemic uh, in our hearts. Uh, this is just a program in Uganda, ABC program. You've probably heard of this before. A stands for abstinence before marriage. B, be faithful. Uh, C, use a condom if your partner is disconjugate, meaning if your partner is HIV positive and you're not, you use a condom to prevent transmission uh, to your spouse. Very simple thing to do. And this is something that we've been working on as you treat patients, patients with ARV, antiretrovirals, and heart therapy. Uh, at 30% of the population, this is population, this is not individuals. At 30, if you treat 30% of the population with HIV in a community with antiretrovirals, the HIV transmission rate flattens, or it goes up at a lower rate. At 50%, it flattens. What we don't know, but we all suspect, is if you treat 90% of the HIV-positive population in a community, that it drops to zero. And the reason we think that is as you treat people with antiretrovirals, what happens? Their viral load drops. And as their viral load drops, their infectivity drops. And most of the patients I see in the United States with HIV have zero, have viral loads of zero or undetectable. And as you drop the 
number of viral particles, the infectivity drops. So I think it is possible, and there's not a lot of good evidence for this, but I think most of us believe that it's true that as you penetrate a community with antiretrovirals, you will control the uh, HIV uh, rate. So you need to be willing to go. You need to be willing to begin. This is my target child, child in Myanmar. And I'd like to tell you a little story, and then we're going to end. I was uh, coming back from Peru a little while ago, and uh, I had gone from the Amazon jungle, and it was 14 hours by bus to, to the airport in Lima. And uh, if you all have ever been on that Delta flight from Lima, you know that it leaves at 1.30 in the morning to fly into uh, Atlanta. It's a brutal flight. But uh, Delta was late, so I didn't leave until 3.30 in the morning from Lima back to Atlanta. And after having gotten up at 4 o'clock in the morning to travel into Lima from, through the Amazon jungle, I was, I was really exhausted. So when I finally boarded the plane, I, I had a, an aisle row, and I just plopped down in the aisle row. And I think in 30 seconds I was asleep. And I never looked to see who was sitting beside me. Usually you kind of look and see who's over there. I never looked. I sat down and fell asleep. A couple hours later, uh, I felt this bumping. And I, I woke up. I wasn't sure where I was. There was this little kid sitting beside me, a four-year-old child. And he was looking out, and there was his mother sitting beside him. And he was jumping up and down on the seat. And he was pointing out the window. And I looked out the window, and there's this gorgeous sunset, or sunrise, over the Andes Mountains. We were probably up over northern Peru or Ecuador or wherever we were. And you can see these beautiful snow-capped mountains and this beautiful sunrise. He was jumping up and down. And he said, Mommy, Mommy, look, look. I can see the whole world from here. So my question for you is, from where you're sitting today, can you see the whole world? He has scattered us abroad as his gift to the poor. Thank you. You guys have been a great audience. You, I commend you for being here at the last day, at the last time. I have one minute for a question. Well, actually, why don't we take the questions afterwards? We're right at 2 o'clock. Thank you very much.